Hey, we're going to open up to John 19 in just a moment. I've got three passages of Scripture, and I invite you to follow along. You can follow in a physical Bible it's in front of you if you want, or on a phone. Uh, you can also find links easily on the website uh, if you're using that on your phone, uh, firstcovenantlincoln.org Sunday. You'll find links there to get to that easily. Uh, as we begin today, um, before we get to John 19, starting at verse 6, Here's a headline from the satirical website, the Babylon Bee, that should pop up here. There it is. Roman soldier assigned to guard tomb of some Jewish carpenter looking forward to uneventful weekend. (laughs) I pray that is none of our experience this weekend, in fact. I pray that it is entirely eventful because the living God is here. Let me go, I want to cover two big words that we use in the theological world as we begin, and then we can kind of, we might reference them a little bit as we go on, of course, but I want us to get the idea of them as we look at some scriptures. And we're going to look at two characters in scripture, Pilate and Mary Magdalene today, and then we're going to actually mix in the middle of that the hope that we have uh, that Jesus Christ opens up uh, on through his death and resurrection. So the first word is the word transcendence. Um, And we run into this in everyday life, but sometimes without realizing it, things like truth and goodness and hope and justice, those kinds of concepts. But when it comes to God, it's very important to understand transcendence. This this is the shorthand version definition up here from John Stott that I have up here, which is God above us, is a simple way to think about it. Um, More complex, God is not a part of his creation. He's something separate from it, right? He it was before it, was after it. He is eternal. He doesn't have a beginning or an ending, whereas creation does have a beginning. It was created, and it has the character of the one who created it uh, implanted in it. But God himself was not created and is not part of his creation. He's something separate. He transcends it. The other word is imminence, and sometimes these can seem like they run into each other in a weird way. Uh, but that God is with and among us. So somehow God being separate from his creation, God can still somehow commune with us in some way. Imminent, meaning he's present in some way with his creation. One way you can think about this, maybe it's not the best, but it's, I think, helpful, is timeless versus timely. Uh, God being timeless, that is, not uh, living under the circumstances of the world that's been created because he created it, Um, He's outside of the rules of this world, if you will, because they're based on his character. Um, And then the idea of imminence, timely, that God can meet us at a place in time and at a moment that matters and in real life. So that's important to recognize that that's the God we're dealing with. And that's the God we're dealing with all the time, not just in the person of Jesus Christ, but it comes down to a particular moment with Jesus Christ where God does something remarkable. And so the story of Easter, we heard it, the egg breaking was perfect, Uh, the empty tomb there, God did something remarkable. And the claim of Easter is that God came in a human body, was killed on a Roman cross, and by God's power was raised to life on the third day. That's the claim of Easter. It's not that God came back naturally, it was the power of God bringing, bringing Jesus back from the dead. It was that he was actually dead, and it was that God came in a human body to do that in the form of Jesus Christ. And the promise of, he did this in order to restore the relationship between God and humans that's been broken by sin. That we have turned our back on the living God who created us, the transcendent God who's outside of creation, gave us our very life, and we have turned our back on him, and that's what's called sin. And the consequence of sin is death. Physical, spiritual, all of it. Death. 
separation from the one who created us. The promise of God is a better tomorrow that begins today. That's what we discover on Easter. The promise of God is that, that tomorrow with God is always better than today, even though there might be rough things that happen in this life, but that that has to happen with a decision today to live into that future, to live into that hope that God has given us through Jesus Christ. We're only going to experience that reality by meeting the transcendent and imminent God, both the God who created and is outside, who can restore creation, and the God who came to meet us in creation to bring us back to him. Now, we want to look at the person of Pilate first. Pilate, uh, let's go to John 19, starting at verse 6. And we'll read through to verse 12. And Pilate was a Roman governor of Judea. Uh, This part of the world uh, was governed by the Roman Empire, and the Jewish population did not care for that, if we put it mildly. But they had to utilize the Roman Empire in order to get some things done occasionally, as we see here. So what's happened by this point is that Pilate has already tried Jesus, in a sense, um, as judge, but he's kind of bringing him back for a second round, and this is kind of middle of the night is about the time we're dealing with this stuff. And so verse 6, as soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, crucify, crucify. But Pilate answered, you take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, we have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power either to free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed me over to you is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept shouting, if you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. Verse 7 is interesting because the Jewish leaders that are bringing him up say he claimed to be a son of God. Now we should recognize that what they're saying and what Pilate is hearing are different things. Pilate could care less about somebody who claims to be the Jewish Messiah. This stuff just does not concern him. Pilate could care less about somebody who might blaspheme God. He doesn't care about that stuff. The Jewish leaders are saying this because they're saying, here's a false Messiah, basically. Here's a guy who's claiming to do something for God that doesn't have the legitimacy or authority to do that. We want him out of here. Pilate actually hears something different, and it's really interesting. I hadn't really dug into this particular question he asks until this week. Um, but all the, the commentaries point this out, that when Pilate asks, where do you come from? It's an odd little question, isn't it? He's not seemingly asking, where do you come from, like Nazareth or Bethlehem or Rome? That doesn't seem to be the question he's asking by this point. It was known and uh, believed in Pilate's day that perhaps gods came in human form and did things good and bad. 
Romans believed this, Pilate seems to be asking a spiritually curious question. Is it possible that this is more than just a man here? Is it possible that there's something else going on in this situation? It's a spiritually curious question. That seems to be as far as he takes it, other than the fact that he tries to protect Jesus from that point. Where do you come from? And we discover that Pilate, for all of his power as a governor of Judea, is kind of stuck with fear at this point and really in a weird spot where he seems to have actually very little power. He's fearful of the Jewish leaders because once they start saying, well, you're no friend of Caesar, well, they actually could take it up to the next person up the line and start making trouble for him. And actually, we know from Pilate's life story that that kind of thing does happen to him later. He gets some trouble like that and ends up having to kind of go up the chain and, and face some consequences. So he knows this isn't a good situation. He's fearful of Jesus. For goodness sakes, Jesus doesn't answer him. I have the power of life and death, but Jesus doesn't answer him. And then he says something about authority, and you can see that Pilate, that gives him pause when that happens. Maybe there is somebody here with authority. Something different is happening in front of me, Pilate is seeing. And then, of course, Pilate's fearful of the crowd. We can discover uh, this is not the first riot that has happened in this area. Pilate has a lot of soldiers at his disposal for somebody in his position because this is a troublesome little part of the Roman Empire. They've been through this before. Pilate has a lot of things to be fearful of, and he appears to be afraid of all of them in one way or another. But you can see that Pilate, whether he really recognized it or not, he has this glimpse of an imminent experience. You can, you can see the pause in Pilate that he knows something bigger seems to be going on or something in front of him is, is more than meets the eye. And I want to point out that an experience with God, an experience with God is always going to lead us to a choice. When God begins to speak, when God begins to work around us, we may not always recognize it to, any more than Pilate in some cases, but an experience with God is always going to lead to a choice. Do I give in to God's authority and God's power, or do I hang on to my own? We remember Pilate. The only reason we're talking about him is because of this incident. He's written in other books, roughly in the same time, to catalog his life. Not much, just a little bit. We mostly remember Pilate because he was a semi-weak-kneed governor who handed over Jesus to be crucified. Not really for any virtue or character or godliness. He's a guy who tried to wash his hands of making a decision, but he ended up making a decision anyways. It's an imminent experience. I want to turn to an Old Testament passage now before we go to Mary. And this one is from Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. This, I think, gives a little more expansiveness to what we heard in the children's sermon of, of what is coming, what our hope is. This is a passage I, I just absolutely love. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. It says, See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind, but be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight, and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child, 
The one who fails to reach 100 will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them and plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord, they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together. The lion will eat straw like the ox, and the dust will be the serpent's food. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain. Whenever you see old cartoons, Looney Tunes, that kind of thing, what happens when someone dies? You usually become like a disembodied spirit, right? Or an angel sitting on a cloud with a harp. And I don't know about you, but it looks really boring. I mean, that's the point, right? It looks really boring, what they're experiencing. It's also not biblical, as it turns out. There is a tangible home that awaits the faithful. That's what scripture tells us. There is a place where a renewed body will dwell in a renewed world with a renewed people. Paul talks about this. We get this here. We get this in Revelation 21. And, and you hear in Scripture, you hear it just a little bit before this in Isaiah, about Isaiah 48, and you hear it in other parts throughout Scripture of the idea of uh, being refined by fire, that that's what God is doing with those who are faithful and even with his world, that when uh, gold or silver is refined, it's put in the fire so that the dross comes out, the impurities come out, and it is purified. It's pure, purged of the impurities and purified. And that's what God is doing with his world and with his people. There is a place for those who put their hope in, in God. We have hope if it hangs on him and his future. Those who are faithful to God, God's wills, will and ways will find a place in the end rid of sin, injustice, theft, betrayal, fear, death, and all that destroys our bodies in this world that God has created. But we also see in this picture an imminent thing, an imminent experience with God. In verse 24, before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. Of course, God can hear us now. Right now, if we speak to God, God hears us. That's a remarkable thing. It's a remarkable thing to dwell on. We can go to the living God, and he hears us. But this is a little more close. We're going to be close enough to God that he's going to be completing our sentences. We're going to be right there in proximity with God when all has come to fruition in the end. When God restores the world broken by sin, we will be so close to God, but just to be in his presence as close as a person possibly can be. Can we actually experience some of that today, though? Can we actually experience some of that hope that's talked about here and talked about in Revelation today? And I would suggest to you that the resurrection is an emphatic yes to that. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is an emphatic yes to the fact that we can actually experience the presence of God today. Not quite as close as this, but pretty close. And closer and closer as we move closer and closer to God in that walk with God through Jesus Christ. You see, God has come close in Jesus Christ. Closer than ever. 
in Jesus Christ. Death is the consequence of sin. We know that. And Jesus came to take away that consequence, put it on himself, and offer us a renewed state. Something new. A new creation, as the New Testament puts it. The new heaven, the new earth, is our hope, but the reality of that can begin today with Jesus Christ. Even though we're living in the old world, we can become the new creation, or at least start the process. And that's what the resurrection shows us. It starts that process. Jesus is the giver of life in the first place. He's the giver of new life. It turns out his resurrected body is also the prototype of what's to come. It's the thing that we will become in the end. We won't be Jesus, but we'll be like him when we actually give ourselves over to the power that resurrected Jesus Christ. What does it mean to live that out now? What does it mean to look like Jesus? It means that we have both an imminent and a transcendent experience with the living God. We know that he is the one through all, beyond the experience we have in this world, but he's the one who comes close and says, but I want you close, and I've made a way. No longer do you need to have your back turned to me. What does it look like? I was struck this week as I was listening to a, a story of a, a missionary, who, a Western missionary from the States who serves in India and Nepal, and he was talking about how he does open-air street preaching and has gone around, he's been beaten a number of different times. And he said the first time it happened, um, he was preaching, and uh, a, sort of a Hindu gang is the simple way to put it, came and they knocked him out with a tire iron and just started beating him while he was unconscious. And he said he finally, it was out for a half an hour, police officer came and threw water in his face and that's what woke him up and then he was able to, to get some help at that point. But what was interesting about his story, he said that's happened many times where he's run into trouble like that, preaching the gospel. But he said, I knew some of the people that beat me up one of them was my neighbor. And so he said the next day, while he's still beaten, while he's still bloodied, he got a basket of fruit. He walked over to his neighbor. And he said, Jesus tells me I'm supposed to love and pray for my enemies. I love you and I forgive you. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing in the resurrection. He comes back after that experience and he says, I love you, and I forgive you. If we go to John 20, then, verse, starting at verse 11, we see that Mary is at the tomb. She's already gone to the tomb with the women. They expected to find Jesus' body. She ran back and had Peter and John come. They had a little foot race back there, and then they ran away because they see the tomb empty, and they're not sure what to do with all this. And then we hit John 20, verse, verses 11 through 18, where Mary is standing there in the garden wondering what's happened. It says, Now Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head, the other at the foot. They asked her, Woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she didn't realize that it was Jesus. He asked her, woman, why are you crying? Who is it you were looking for? Thinking he was the gardener, she said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you have put him and I will get him. Jesus said to her, Mary. 
she turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said, do not hold on to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. Go instead to my brothers and tell them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. And she told them that he had said these things to her. It's interesting that in, when we hit this part of the story, Mary and the disciples, they were all hiding. They had no expectation that anything remarkable was going to happen. They were just, as, as we saw the soldiers at the beginning, expecting this was going to be an uneventful weekend, a failure of a weekend, really, in their minds. The guy we followed is now dead. Pilate actually had word that there could be some shenanigans. Uh, Pilate had gotten word from uh, Jewish leaders that said, hey, there was some rumbling when Jesus was alive that he was going to come back in three days or something like that. He said something to that effect of raising the temple. And uh, they said, we should probably put some guards there. And Pilate couldn't care less. And he's kind of like, okay, whatever you want to do, go for it. And so they do. They put some guards there. But Mary didn't expect anything. They expected a full tomb, a closed tomb, as it turns out, if you look at Mark. She expected Jesus to be there, dead, body ready to be prepared. New Testament scholar, the late Bruce Metzger, says of the resurrection, he says, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is overwhelming. Nothing in history is more certain than that the disciples believed that after being crucified, dead, and buried, Christ rose again from the tomb on the third day, and that at intervals thereafter he met and conversed with them. The most obvious proof that they believe this is the existence of the Christian church. It is simply inconceivable that the scattered and disheartened remnant could have found a rallying point and a gospel in the memory of him who had been put to death as a criminal. Mary had an imminent and transcendent experience on Easter morning. She didn't know the fullness of what happened when she saw Jesus in his renewed state. There's something different about the resurrected body. There was something different. But it was a decision moment for her. Mary knew that God had done something here. Mary knew that something was up. And she decided, I'm going to follow this guy. Right? She had given up a lot to, come to follow this guy, as the disciples had. Then he died, and then she realizes he's back to life. I believe God is something up to something, so I'm going to follow this guy. The garden experience was the moment that she knew God had indeed done something incredible. And it started with her simple decision that today I'm going to live into God's tomorrow. The promise of God is a better tomorrow beginning today, and we have to make that decision to join in that. And here's the thing. We should have the belief of Mary. I... I think that when it comes down to the evidence for Jesus and the evidence for the resurrection, it points only in one direction, historically. We should have the belief of Mary. Jesus is alive. But all too often, I think we run into the fact that many of us don't even have the belief of Pilate. I've seen a lot of people who have that, that belief of Pilate or less. They believe they're in control of their life, but actually it's all the forces around them that are really in control of their decisions. 
It's everything else. They have the image of, of having it together, but they don't. It's just an image. I've seen people who have gone to church their entire lives who have that. I've seen people who have avoided church their entire lives who have that same lack of curiosity. But can you do me a favor this morning and be curious about Jesus? I mean, Pilate was actually curious. And so I have a couple next steps we could take. And there's one for everybody, if you want to find one in here. And if you really want to follow up on any of these, you can either find me afterwards or you can go to the digital bulletin, the Sunday page on our website, and you can actually click a little button and it'll send me something and we can follow up later. I'd love to. But one of them is, if you want to follow up, make a commitment that today I'm going to have more curiosity than Pilate did about Jesus. I'm going to be more curious than Pilate. I'm going to do something like, hey, talk to the pastor about Jesus. I'm curious. Today, I'm going to have more curiosity than Pilate because I'm going to start reading the Gospel of John. It's amazing how just reading the Gospel has changed an awful lot of lives. Just pick one. But a lot of people that have not even shown a curiosity about Jesus don't, don't even try. But if you try, your life could be changed. I'm going to show more curiosity than Pilate by coming back next week. Not saying that because I want to fill the pews. I'm saying that because I love Jesus and I hope you would too. Or this. Right now, I have the belief of Mary and I've heard enough and I've never said yes to Jesus, but I want to. I want to say I want to follow him. If that's you, I'd love to talk to you afterwards so we can do that together. I said there's something for everybody. Whether you follow Jesus or not, you can do this last one. Right now, I'm going to pray for someone in the room or online that they would get curious about Jesus and want to know more and make a decision. God's tomorrow begins today when you choose new life in Jesus Christ. And the new life that he's promised us is pretty remarkable. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, for those of us who lack that curiosity of Pilate, change our hearts right now. We're here. We're actually here whether we realize it or not, Lord, because you exist. Because you did something remarkable in history. And because of that, there's a church and there's a place to come to and there's a, a revelation, your word of God, and we've heard it this morning. And we don't respond because of the songs or because of the pastor's words, music in the air, or even the hospitality of the place. We respond because of the hospitality of a word this morning. God, if we've heard something that's true, let us not turn our back on it, but walk towards it. Not try and wash our hands of it, but live into it. Lord, help our unbelief. Help us have the belief of Mary to actually embrace you and walk with you, to be transformed through your son, Jesus Christ. This we pray in the name of Jesus, who gave his life for us. Amen.